From Chicago, Adam and Josh here with the final installment of our Satyajit Ray Marathon. We are going to discuss Sharulata or The Lonely Wife and also get to the Mitras, our Best of the Ray Marathon Awards. As you may be able to tell, I didn't realize how bad I sounded until I came in and you pointed it out. I will get to the Mitras. I don't know if you're going to make By it the with time, that voice. Yeah, we get to the awards, I may be done, but it is true I'm playing Hurt this week, was playing Hurt as well when Michael and I taped our show that people are going to hear on Friday. Really fun show, though. Josh, you were out for this one. We reviewed It Follows, the new horror movie, shared our top five 21st century horror movies, and a great idea from Michael. We had on Mark Harris, the wonderful author and writer, yeah. who recently wrote a piece for Grantland about the indie horror boom and just in general kind of what scares us and what scares him and we had a really good chat with him Excellent. so hope to have him back on the show that's coming though on friday i don't sound as bad during that <laughs> fortunately even though i did have a head cold and an ear infection during that as well so if that came out good i'm happy we'll see how this one goes Josh. all right let's go ahead the disclaimers are out there now on our last show Woody Allen's The Purple Rose of Cairo made my top 10 films of 1985 list. And I mentioned how Woody himself regards it as probably his best movie. If I recall correctly, he surmised that with Purple Rose, he most accomplished what he set out to do. I don't know how instructive it is to consider a movie along these lines. Does the director's opinion of his or her work matter? Perhaps not. But as luck would have it, on the same night, we are sharing our picks for the best of this marathon, The Mitras. We're discussing the film Ray is on record as decreeing his favorite. Echoing Woody's sentiment, Ray told an interviewer, the one film I would make the same way if I had to do it again is Sharulata. Think about all of the choices a director makes on a project. To have even one that you have no gripes with, no lines you'd add or remove, no shots you'd redo, no scenes that just didn't pack the punch you were hoping for, it's pretty astounding. The magnificent Madhabi Mukherjee, who we saw in our last marathon movie, The Big City, returns here in Ray's 12th feature film. Sharulata, like virtually every woman who preceded her in this marathon, is dissatisfied with her life. Unlike every other woman we've seen, she has no real domestic responsibilities. No kids to care for, no food to prepare, no home to tidy. The servants take care of all of those duties. She's barely a wife, as her wealthy husband, Bupati, is undeniably affectionate towards her, but is too consumed with the politics politics of 1870s Calcutta and running his newspaper to give her his time. To provide some companionship, Bupati invites his writer cousin Amal to stay with them, sparking a friendship that ignites some passionate stirring in each of them. Amal is played by Sumitra Chatterjee, who we last saw as the grown-up Apu, also an aspiring writer in the world of Apu. Josh, do you have any inclinations as to why Ray might be so content out of all of his films with The Lonely Wife and were you similarly pleased? Maybe it's because it's a combination a bit of the film in the marathon that stands out the most to me, at least of the Ray films we've seen, The Music Room. It's a combination of that and also The Big City in a lot of ways. And some of the themes maybe are similar to The Big City, but some of the formalism and certainly the setting is similar to The Music Room, which was in this ornate palace of an aristocrat. Mm -hmm. And here we're also pretty much limited to the ornate or at least lavish. It's like its own building, this mansion, multi-level mansion with a courtyard and a garden uh, that uh, Charlotta lives in. And so there are some same concerns there in terms of class and it comes together quite beautifully. And, and maybe that's what he appreciated about it. Maybe it was reuniting with some of the actors, as you mentioned, he'd worked with before and getting some different things from them. We can talk about the performances because there's one here that I would think is not as good as the previous performance he got out of the actor. And I'm not, though, talking about Madhabi Mukherjee because she is fantastic, as we would have expected having seen her in the big city. So that's my best guess. Uh, as far as where I would rank it, we'll probably get to that in the Mitras. I think we can talk about it a little bit, but it is as strong as most of the stuff we've seen. It was held me in thrall as so many of these films have done. And I just, you know, I'm constantly amazed with the experimentation in the camera work that's continuing from film to film. 
There's a lot of that here. And also, again, the use of the actors and exploring different ways of using them and their strengths. So, uh, yes, this is a great, you know, it's unfortunate we have to bring this marathon to an end. I wish it could continue, as I've mentioned before, but this was a nice way to close it out. Yeah, it definitely was. And I think you're dead on in terms of your assessment of it being a little bit of a combination of music room. I definitely felt that you can't help it because in both films, you're pretty much stuck inside and these characters are also stuck inside these settings and kind of stuck inside their heads a little bit and yet she also has some of the same characteristics that the character Mukherjee played in The Big City had which is that kind of dissatisfaction with her life and trying to figure out exactly what her proper path is in the world so you are certainly right there and I don't know that I can offer much to this discussion in terms of what this movie is really about or what it's doing dramatically, even though everything it deals with in terms of trust and betrayal and marriage, I think in some ways it's it's not maybe the most plot heavy of the films we've seen, but it feels the most ratcheted up. Melodramatic. Of, yeah, the most melodramatic. For sure. That really is the word I'm looking for. And, and that's fine. I mm-hmm. like that element, the way things kind of fit together. There's even a little bit of an Othello angle to this film, right, where there's a handkerchief and there's slippers on the floor and a little bit of fear that the husband's going to see them, and what is he going to think in a letter? And the letter sparks... The power of objects. Yeah, you know, so that definitely comes up here, and there's jealousy and all those different emotions that are on display. But I keep coming back to, you said the experimentation. We've spent so much time talking about the camera work, the cinematography, the visual approach in these films, and that is why we ultimately went with the Mitras for the title of our awards because the cinematographer who I believe I looked this up shot all six of the movies we talked about is Subrata Mitra. So longtime collaborator and obviously an important collaborator with Ray in terms of how they use the camera and what makes his films so special. It's a lot of things. It's the way the characters are developed and it is the sensibility and the sensitivity he brings to all of his work. There's no doubt about that, but it is also how he chooses to shoot them and how he puts them on screen for us to consider. And again, it starts right away with the credits. You get this opening credit sequence where we don't know it at the time, but our main character here, Mukherjee, who plays Charlotte, of course, she's embroidering something. And it looks like sort of a standard opening credit sequence. It's going to end and then the movie proper will start. Except what happens? The camera actually, as soon as her face enters the frame, the camera actually just wides out quickly Mm -hmm. and you realize that it's just going to go and it's going to jolt you a little bit and it's going to give you the sense that everything seems to be maybe tranquil in this place, but guess what? It isn't all that peaceful. There is some drama. There is some tension behind the scenes. We do learn that she's making something for her husband, which is all she really can do. That's how she passes her time. She can't do anything else in this culture of India in the late 1800s. But as that catches your attention and gets you kind of going in terms of understanding the dynamic of this film and her daily life, her daily routine, watching her then walk around the different rooms, you feel like she's kind of a caged bird. Sure. Right? There are all these different entrances. They all feel the same and you don't really know where she's going and she's a little bit aimless and you do get that sense of isolation and then how about the opera glasses sequence where you see her actually walk from window to window spying different people as they're out on the street this is her distraction this is her entertainment her only way to really take in the world is to watch it from the outside and she looks at different people then she actually goes from window to window tracking the same person seeing how they move so that's all fascinating and she looks through the the shades and you realize they're sort of a a prison cell right there are so many layers between her and the world Mm -hmm. and focusing on that one man is her form of entertainment it was a a sense of containment that i felt Mm -hmm. the camera work gave to me in that opening sequence from zooming out from what i recall there aren't that many cuts so we have a sense of again her being in this confined space it's very lavish it has a lot of books that she can flip through and other things to pass the right. time. But, but is it fulfilling still, in any way? Right. You still feel this sense of confinement. You absolutely do. And then the real masterful stroke here is that after all of this, after she's passed a little bit of time, her husband comes home. And just like those people on the street who are oblivious to her watching them, he walks right by her. And what does she do? 
she raises those opera glasses right. to her face. She actually looks at him the same way she looks at those people and really does put a fine point on it. And again, the camera does that jolt. It, it scoots to behind her and it cuts to that shot behind her and sees the distance between them and really accentuates that distance that's there physically, but also emotionally, psychologically in every way. It's all there in the camera work and that's all in the first 10 minutes of the film. We wouldn't even know that's her husband. I didn't know because no, of the distance between them and the fact that he doesn't acknowledge her. So we really get that sense of, again, comfortability, yet still alienation. When you were talking about the objects, that made me think of the one filmmaker who came to mind. He's popped up a few times as we've gone through this marathon, but this was the film where I really could see some comparisons. And it's another marathon filmmaker we did, Max Ophels. Hmm. It was in the, again, the ornate setting and the production design here and the social class that we are probably learning about. I'm thinking specifically of Ophels, The Earrings of Madame Du. Sure. Which camera um, may be a little more grandiose. Very but... grandiose in those films. A lot of it centers around a found object again the the earrings of the title but they both have this sense of these roiling emotions illicit emotions really underneath these gilded surfaces that seem to be perfect seem to be exactly what anyone should want and if you had these things if you had this lifestyle you should be happy but when this cousin comes in it really exposes the unhappiness that she does feel because there's an opportunity for a deeper level of happiness and so that's something else that drives the earrings of madame du and and uh, i just think that there there are a lot of similarities between those two films in the mood for love from wong kar wai is another one that i thought of now i would argue that both of those films have a little bit more of a tragic pull to me than Charulata does. For sure. And the reason, I think, is because of that one performance I was hitting at, and it's from Sumitra Chatterjee as the cousin Amal. I loved him in the world of Opu. We, I talked quite a bit about the sequences between Opu and his young wife and how romantic those were and how endearing he was. It's a different type of performance. So he would seem to be the right performer or the right type to play this role. Uh, and, and I understand the attraction at first because he is this artist and they have this connection over literature, which Charlotta does not share with her husband. He interestingly passes her off to his cousin because he's just more interested in politics. He knows she likes to read. He's a writer. So here, pass your time with him. Mm -hmm. So I understood the attraction, but the devotion that we're supposed to buy in never quite resonated with me as much as I felt as it should because Amal is kind of a goof as well. And uh, I, I just felt like I wanted that that stickier essence between them that you get from something like In the Mood for Love or The Earrings of Madame Du. Yeah, I don't know that I loved his performance in this film, certainly not as much as I did in The World of Opu, but I think because of Mukherjee's performance and how much Charu is drawn to him, clearly has passionate feelings for him, I then got on board with that. I mean, the, the, the sheer force of that performance was enough to make me believe their connection. And you talk about the complexities of some of the dynamics and the relationships here and the performance that Mukherjee gives. There's an exchange where after he's written something and they have a real kind of competition. You know, there's there's some love there, perhaps, on both of their parts, but there's also a competition where she doesn't want to be outdone. She thinks she's a pretty good writer, or maybe she could be, and she wants to give that a shot, and so he gets something published, and she's then pushed to publish something of her own, and she does succeed. And when she comes in and she hits him over the head with the pamphlet, with the, the book of writing, the collection that she's been publishing, and... He encourages her, and he's standing behind her. It is almost, now that you say melodrama, it is almost a soap opera type shot where the main character is facing the camera, but someone's behind them, mm -hmm. talking to them. And what he's saying to her in terms of how good of a writer she is, and you see her taking that all in, and at first you think that it is actually further driving her passion, that his encouragement is somehow... I hate to say it, almost turning her on. Yeah, it right? becomes it a could romantic be. gesture, for That's sure. That's what it is. But then, but then it takes a little bit of a turn, and it leads up to a line where she starts crying and says she'll never write again. Of course, that's linked a little bit to that passion. And the fact that it makes her feel that way when she does something good, and he gives her credit for it, that's only going to potentially lead to something bad happening, or bad in the terms of the structure of this culture and her marriage, right? So the way all of that is captured just with her 
facial expressions, really, up until the point where she finally does start crying and say that she's never going to write again. It's all there. It's all there in the performance. Well, here and even more so than in the big city, it is the facial expressions that she uses to convey just about everything, because this is a woman who does not have the opportunity to speak as much as perhaps the wife did in the big city, even though she was of a lower class there. Here it is her place as an upper class woman, you sense, to be in the background. And so she has to convey everything that's going on simply through her expressions. And she does that in the scene you mentioned. The one that I'm thinking of is when they're in the garden together and they've formed this relationship, this tutor, teacher-student sort of relationship. So it hasn't really crossed any lines yet, but she's thinking about it. She's sitting on a swing. Oh, yeah. And we get this close-up of her face. And you'll notice that Ray does help us out with some insert shots. So the editing plays into the performance here, too. We'll get her face, and then we'll get a shot of the leaves on a bush. Mm -hmm. And so we infer, both from the acting and the insert, that she's contemplating the beauty of the leaves. And then we'll get a shot of her looking at a mall. And we'll yeah, read into that very directly. Yep. And then we'll get one of her looking at a neighbor with a young baby and she does not have a child. And so we put those things together as she is. She's looking at him, the chance for a child, maybe. And on her face, again, there's a different shade. And then we get one more, which is this realization of how ridiculous she's being. And that's when it's all her because she makes that shift for us. There's nothing to show us that these thoughts are ridiculous. Her face shows us that, and she kind of tries to pack it away. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's really quite a scene that's on top with anything she does in the big city. Well, there are two incredible swing sequences in this movie. I'm not sure which one is better. That first one where you've thrown out some other filmmakers, how about Spike Lee? It reminded me of Spike Lee, and yeah, I don't know if he ever watched Satchi Jet Ray, right? But his famous shot of mounting the camera kind of right on the person looking at their face in close-up as they are moving forward, the world is moving around them, but they're not walking, you know? Right. They're sort of on that treadmill feeling, whatever. Here, that's what's happening on this swing. More experimentation. Mounting it however he does so that it's just focused on her as she's swaying backwards and forwards. And then, as you said, we do get some POV inserts in there, but for the most part, it stays focused on her, and it does just capture sort of, as she's singing a song, yes. deep from within my heart is yearning, that swing, it just captures this sort of carefree sense about her that she's getting there. And, and obviously, the different feelings it stokes in her towards Amal as well, but it so beautifully reflects a freeness that she doesn't show when she's trapped in that mansion, which also happens to be her own personal prison. I'm so glad you mentioned the singing because that's used in a number of ways here in the film. She's singing right away early on, I believe, in that opening sequence you mentioned, if not then, a little earlier. And it's also a lovely song, but she's singing quietly, sort of, again, to pass the time to herself. Amal arrived in the house, and he's a singer too, right? He's a personality who will sing as he walks around. Mm -hmm. And so the two of them get together, and her song, her singing, changes significantly how she does it. And that swing is where it does kind of come out full force. She means it when she's singing on the swing in a way she hasn't mm -hmm. in the other times in the film when she's been singing. But which one is better? Because the second mm -hmm. one is this key sequence where we see the artist in her come out. It's one of those scenes that you don't see a lot on film where you talk about, you know, how do you depict a writer or a great right. writer in the artistic process, right? And we only see her start to write and struggle. And then we see her later start to write and we know that she's successful because she's later published. But it all happens because in between those is her sitting on the swing and another close-up just focused on her face and we get these inserts, these superimpositions of things she's envisioning. And she writes a story called My Village, and Amal had given her some advice idea, to right? write about her past and write about what she knows and where she came from. But what she's envisioning, we don't have any connection or relationship to those. They could be direct images from her past. They could be her past and her imagination coming together in an interesting artistic way. But it's a startling sequence, and it all starts with that face. Again, it all does come back to that face, but at the same time, the insertion of those visions. They're superimposed yeah, at that point. They are. They, right. Yeah. 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 And they come in and out. And, and I don't know, they're both so lovely and both so different because, of course, she's still during that, right? So it does stand in contrast to the other swing sequence. We've talked a lot about the camera, 
But what about the editing and the way he elides time and uses ellipses to suggest important things? Actually, you know who else does that really well? Max Ophel. So Mm -hmm. I think you're on to something there. But during that sequence where she decides, okay, I'm going to write something, we see her start to write, scribble, disappointed, and she crumples it up. We don't actually see her throw it on the floor. But in the next shot, it cuts to a close-up shot of the ground. But now it's outside. We don't see her go outside. We don't see the day change or or anything like that. We just go from her dissatisfied crumpling a piece of paper to then crumpled up pieces of paper on the ground out in nature. And then we get to her actually on that swing as she stares into the camera and has those, those visions. So there are many of them, but another one is how about during that first sequence on the swing where she says to him, I'm going to make you a notebook. Now, again, the movie starts with her making this handkerchief for her husband. That means something. This is something wives do for their husbands in this time and place. And she says, I'm going to personalize a notebook for you. That's, that's a pretty telling gesture mm-hmm. in terms of her feelings for him, even if they're just starting to come out, or maybe that's a real first sign of it. And what he does, Ray has her say that as they're out there talking, I'm going to make you a notebook. The next cut is her dropping the notebook onto the ground next to him. We don't know how much time has passed. It could be a day. It could be a week. It could be a month. But clearly, she wasted no time in actually embroidering that notebook for him. And when she sets it down there, it suggests that this is a little bit of a ritual for them. This is something they probably regularly do. Mm -hmm. But the fact that she instantly goes to work on it and instantly hands it to him, and it all happens just with one cut, it's... It's pretty wonderful. Yeah, it's the, it's the sense of urgency it lends to, to that whole gesture. So let me ask you about the ending, and we don't have to get into the details of it, because it is more of a formal question I have. Yeah, it really but is. We get to this sudden right where the film feels like it is ended. It could have ended completely, and it would have felt complete. But instead, we get this series of still frame shots, freeze frames, essentially, of the two figures who are in the ending. And a title comes up, The Broken Nest. And it was really jarring for me. I'll be completely honest. It took me it took me out of, I will say, and this gets to the plot, I was a little bit jarred by the turn it took at the very end because there seems to be reconciliation. We've gone through conflict and reconciliation and a reconciliation that felt true and authentic to true. me. You're right. Very true. It, yeah. In a way that some of the reconciliation scenes between the husband and wife in the big city felt. Mm-hmm. So I was... You think they're finally on each yeah, other's side? Yeah. They're going to face this world together, just like in the so big city. So this is more than wanting a happy ending. It's no, just right. that it felt true, and we get this little turn at the end I that loved takes it. us back I to... I loved it so much. Okay, good. Well, <laughs> talk to me about that, and then talk to me about how the freeze frames helped with that love or maybe didn't play into it well i love what it says in terms of thematically or the content in that i'm with you that it feels like it kind of pulls a rug out from under you because you buy the reconciliation but i think that's ray just being so much more sophisticated than us and so much more understanding of how we function as humans and recognizing that that reconciliation as true as it may have felt to them even in the moment really is just a temporary thing. It's a or fleeting a step, thing, perhaps. Or a step, but the reality is they probably will never be able to overcome whatever divide there is between them. It's simply the way it is. He is, and, and real quick, I want to sidetrack and say this goes back to the big city as well. I love the fact that the husband here is not a villain. He's not a bad guy. Certainly. You're never really rooting against him. He ignores his wife, and He makes and that's a lot bad, of mistakes, but... For sure. But at the same time... Human clearly, mistakes. clearly has affection for her. Mm-hmm. He he brings them all in because he wants to help his wife and not just give her someone to play with or pass the time with, but because he thinks she has some talent and hopes that somehow he'll help her and maybe she'll write and that's a good thing. So so his intentions are are good for the most part, but his intentions don't matter. He can't help but be who he is and be a selfish individual and be driven to pursue the things he's driven to pursue. And there is an obstacle between them. There is a gap between them that I don't think can ever be bridged. And that's what he shows us in that final moment when he kind of twists it on us. And then the freeze frame, as they're about to reach for each other with their hands, Mm -hmm. it feels like there's going to be 
another reconciliation. This moment now where they've come apart and he's filled with jealousy and is hurt. And can they overcome this and go on as a couple? And they reach out their hands and that freeze frame suggests to me this sort of everlasting to infinity. They're never going to connect. So I love that. I mean, it's disappointing in a way because Mm -hmm. I had started to buy into maybe they could be happy with each other. But I don't think they can be happy with each other. I think the movie proves that. So I like that. But in terms of just the daringness, is that the word? Yeah, you have to admire formal choice. We've thrown out a bunch of filmmakers' names here. The closest thing I can think of to that ending that we get here in this movie in terms of doing something formally that is so unexpected that it actually makes you, it made me watching it on Blu-ray, pause it, rewind it, make sure that it was still working. Okay. You know what? It no, makes I'm me with think, you. It makes I'm me think a little bit you. of obviously the ending of the Sopranos a little bit, right? Where everybody watching it had the same reaction, like what just happened to my TV. But the other thing would be Kiristami's close up to an extent, right? The end of that film, all of a mm-hmm. sudden, Kiristami himself appears on camera and it looks like it's home video or something. Yeah, it's yeah. like, wait a second, how does this fit into the movie, right? It is that jarring. It's that jarring to all of a sudden. And I love the fact too that the shots that we do see, these tableaus that look like they're still photos from the set. They were shot while it was being shot. They all make sense within those moments, right? That you can see her, Charu, as she's reaching out her hand. You can see uh, Baja, I think, the servant. He's probably somewhere in that house doing whatever he's doing in that photo. But when they cut to him, he's like in a portrait, It's not him in that moment. It's like he's on the wall. He's somehow still separated from her and everybody else. I don't know if that's what was being suggested or not, but that's how I sort of read it. And just the fact that he was willing to do that, the music just stops. Mm -hmm. It just stops abruptly. They stop as they're about to touch each other, and they are forever frozen in that pose. It's... Yeah, it's more, it's more, it's so brazen and brave that it's more than being enigmatic. It's more than questioning, okay, where are they going to be like maybe the before midnight films do or the before sunrise films where you're thinking, oh, okay, I see where they're at now, but I'm not sure where they're going to be here. It's crystallizing that, as you said, there is brokenness, Mm -hmm. the brokenness that it's not going to be repaired. And by using a freeze frame, it makes it stick that much harder. So that's the lonely wife. And it sounds like maybe she'll be forever lonely, Josh, or maybe not. Maybe if we had gotten a sequel, we would see pessimistic way to what she, what she did with her talents. And maybe she met another man like Amal somewhere down the road or decided she didn't need a man at all, which is entirely possible. Let's get to then the awards. We've officially closed out the marathon here, talked about these six films again, calling them the Mitras in honor of the great cinematography. And we're going to get to a category that was the toughest (laughs) appropriately for me to select. It was best shot. Let's not start there though. Let's start with some of the performances and the characters. I actually want to start with one you suggested. We always have to have kind of a funny one that's unique to the marathon. And why not when you have Ray known for the Apu trilogy started with those three movies, favorite Apu. Who do you have? I didn't do a count, but I, how many actors do we know offhand? Well, I did a count. Okay, good. I did. And I was actually surprised it wasn't more, but I think there are only four. Really? Yeah. There's the one we see in Father Panchali, just one, Subir Banerjee. Then in the second film, The Unvanquished, there's two. There's him as a slightly older boy, played by Panaki Sengupta, and then as a teenager, played by Samaran Gosal. And then we've talked about Sumitra Chatterjee is Apu throughout the world of Apu. So four of them total, two as boys. Two is somewhat older men. Which one do you like best? Well, when I hear the name Apu, I see two faces. I, of course, I see Subir Banerjee's as the little boy. Yes. He's sort of the iconic face that if you were Google Images Apu, that's who's going to come up, that's right? It. And I think of him running through the fields and the forests in Pather Panchali and smiling. And then I do think of Sumitra Chatterjee as the newly married Apu in the world of Apu. Uh, again, blissfully smiling at his new bride played there by Sharmila Tagore. Maybe I just want to think of Apu as happy. And that's why I'm going this way, because so much of his life is defined by, you know, death and loss. And I want to think of him as being defined by life and hope. So I am going to go with Sumitra Chatterjee. That, okay. That's my pick. Um, I think he 
I think he captures the essence of the character of Opu in the sense that it's not so much tied to what he endures. So we can focus on that when it comes to characters, the actions surrounding them. But Chatterjee really gets at that sense of joy that seems to somehow, it's the way he instinctively greets life. And it's also this cheerful persistence with which he endures all of these things that uh, that he does suffer. And it's it, this isn't sort of in a Pollyannish way that he does this. It has to do with the title of, I believe, the second film of the Opu trilogy, Unvanquished. That's the characteristic I do think of him in this way way, um, just the way that he does greet all of these hardships and, and real tragic events in his life. So if I have to pick one Opu, it is Sumitra Chatterjee. Well, I agree with everything you said. You articulated that very well. And that was where I was initially going, especially when I actually liked the world of Opu better than Father Panchali, but kind of went where you were initially going. For me, it's that image. It's that iconic face. Okay. That's the Apu trilogy it's for me. It's a great face. It's that face. And that spirit that, as you said, goes out and greets the world head on and deals with whatever is thrown his way. Just that sort of innocence, but also that kind of rugged willingness to engage in whatever trouble he may want yeah, to get into. The troublemaker yeah. element is a key to that performance as well. Yeah. So for me, it's Subir Banerjee. What about best supporting performance? Is there one of the supporting players throughout all of these films that stood out? You know, every one of these, I want to say this was the hardest category because there were so many options where you could go. This was another hard one, but I'm going to go with Uma Dasgupta as Opu's sister Durga in Father Panchali. This is the middle section of the film, so she's probably maybe about 12 here, maybe a little older. Opu is maybe nine. When we talked about Padre Panchali, I mentioned that their relationship, the sibling relationship, was really the emotional heart of the film for me. And I think that Gupta, more than Subir Banerjee as Opu, is the real reason that their dynamic between them to me is such authenticity. In Ray's memoir, uh, My Years with Opu, he talks about Gupta having a much more natural affinity for acting in front of the camera. There's some interesting stories about how he got Subir Banerjee actually to do what he wanted him to do. I think he got great performances from both, but it just took a bit more work with Banerjee. So uh, Gupta gets my supporting performance. That's a great pick and one for whatever reason I didn't initially consider. I had three or four others in mind, but certainly deserving. For me, I'm going with from the original part of this trilogy from Father Panchali, Karuna Banerjee, and she is Sarbajaya, who I've talked about a lot Give throughout that this marathon. You love. Yeah, the soliloquy, but I'm actually not going with Panchali. I'm sorry, I'm going with The Unvanquished. Okay. That second performance where we talked about this a lot. She really comes to the fore, mm-hmm. takes on an even bigger role, and really becomes the tragic figure. Well, she's the tragic figure of Panchali, too, but it's there, I think, even more in the fore in The Unvanquished and just that range of emotions that she has to depict on screen and we have to see her suffer through. And again, just horrible tragedy, but also real joy, real joy. That that feeling of watching her son when she finally decides, I can't believe you're going to leave me and you're going to go off to school and go to the city and I'm going to be here alone. But at the same time, her finally resigning herself to this being the right thing. She's completely and I have to let on his go. side as much as it hurts. Yeah, yeah she's so good in that film. Best performance, or I'm just going to call it right here, Josh, best Madabi Mukherjee performance. <laughs> yeah. Which one are you picking? This is the easy one, right? Yeah. So I am going or to go it? with The Big City. Okay. And I just completely fell under her spell here in this movie where she's the traditional housewife who enters the modern workforce. She manages to charm everyone in this cramped household that they live in, each in a different way. She's very careful to how she communicates to each of them to get them under her spell and in the process she did completely charm me. I think it has a lot to do with the way she crinkles that one eyebrow here and there and most memorably in the big city it happens when she gets her first paycheck from the job and she's in the bathroom. Oh yeah that shot in the mirror right? she looks at herself holding the money spreads it out mm-hmm. kind of fans it out yep. and looks at herself in the mirror and and there's just again so many different it, it's a three act drama in one close up in how she feels about this whether it's a you know it, it's pride maybe a little bit of guilt at yeah. crossing social shame bonds a and such a wonderful moment. She also pulls that eye out uh, at least once in Charulata as well. At and, least once, yeah. And it works really well. Uh, it, it just speaks to her greatest strength. It's that expressive face we talked about. And uh, that's just one of her many wonderful moments in the big city. Yeah. She's so good. And 
I think it's entirely possible that if you really broke down the performances beat by beat and talked about them in terms of how you exude a sort of a restraint, but then also this inner fire, it's possible that Charulata is the more complex performance. Could be. But that doesn't change the fact that my favorite is The Big City. Nice. It is. And that may have to do with me slightly preferring that film over The Lonely Wife. But that performance is one for me, Josh, actually, that was a sort of transformative experience. When I actually think about forever as we move forward and we do any kind of top five list that deals with great female performances of all time, I'm going to go back to The Big City yeah. and Madabi I think Bukhari. we'll have to. Yeah, it's that good. Okay, so that brings us to one of the other two categories that was almost impossible. I mean, I have a list of nine options here, Josh, and I could probably come up with nine more, but I actually feel a little bit good here about the fact that I underprepared for these awards because if I had fully prepared, I'd still be taking notes right now, right? <laughs> like I would be here dwelling on this even more than film spotting madness. These choices were way harder than any of those actor choices sure. because having to pick the most moving moment, the the moment that just really touched you and really made you emotional. There are so many in these films. How did you finally decide it? I went with one that we talked about in detail after considering some we didn't get to because you're right, there are so many, but I went with tossing the lipstick out of the window in the big city. The husband here, uh, played by Anil Chatterjee, this is when he's discovered his wife's lipstick in her purse. This is Manhabi Mukherjee, of course, and uh, realizes that she's been wearing this uh, when she goes out and makes these sales calls. Sort of rocks his world. He, he can't believe this for a number of reasons. And it comes up again during one of their disagreements. He references it and her instinct at this point, she takes it out of her purse, goes to the window, and just tosses it out. Again, as I mentioned, I don't read this as an act of submission, of saying, you're right, I'm out of place, please no. forgive me. I read it as this incredibly romantic declaration of what matters to her most, and that is that the both of them be on the same page during this major life transition they're going through. Her, her line of dialogue you mentioned uh, during the scene is key, don't misunderstand me. So again, I'm going positive here. There's a lot of tragic moments you could pick as most moving moments. Easily could have gone that way, yeah. but I'm going to go with a deeply romantic one. Yeah, see, I love everything about what you said and why you picked that scene. I'm hopelessly a little more literal, just like on the show with Michael picked my favorite 21st century horror movies and I went with the movies that scared me okay. and I didn't want to go outside that it wasn't about picking sort of alternative horror choices here most moving moments it's not as if I had to look far for moments that made me really emotional and if not brought me to tears brought me actually close to tears and that for me the one you described the lipstick that's moving in a different kind of way because it's sort of inspiring and it's really complicated and you really just want to devour everything you're watching on screen and take it all in. And you love the fact that you see that dynamic between the husband and wife, but it doesn't make me teary. Okay. So I'm sorry. It didn't make you cry. I went a different direction and let me just list some of the ones I did consider. We'll see if they came up for you as well. You're right. Grief is a big part of these films, a big part of life. Of course, the sister's death and father Panchali Sarbajaya's soliloquy that I talk so much about in Panchali, her solitude, let's call it, in The Unvanquished. There are multiple scenes I could point to in terms of her really feeling that loss of her son and just being lost to the world at that point. Her ultimate death in The Unvanquished, on a happier note, the father and son reunion in the world of Apu. Yeah. That's magic. The other happy husband and wife moments in the world of Apu, I think don't necessarily make you that emotional, but are just so stirring that they work for this category. And then as well, the reconciliation between husband and wife in the big city, another happy one that I found moving. But the one that did slay me the most, and I think we got into it a little bit because we went to some spoiler territory during that discussion, it's the wife's death in the world of Apu. That that it's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about. It's it's when the brother-in-law yeah, comes. The brother-in-law comes. Okay, yeah. And it's really funny too because I was preparing for this tonight and as I said, I'm obviously a little bit sick. Well, three of my kids are also sick. And Sophie is in between throwing up, literally, laying next to me on the bed as Wonderful. I'm preparing. And she's looking over my shoulder and she's reading what I'm writing. And I forgot that at different points in this marathon, she would come into the room sometimes and catch certain moments. Mm -hmm. Now, 
we talked about the world of Apu, I mean, how many weeks ago now? Two months ago, right? And I'm writing down the most moving moments, and I write the wife's death in the world of Apu. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's when he punched the guy. Wow. She yeah. remembered that. Yeah, I, I mean, it had it. an impact on her, too. That scene, remembering when he comes in and gives him the news and his reaction is to just strike out at him. And you completely understand. I had even forgotten that aspect of that scene, but my 10-year-old daughter remembered it from a couple months ago. So it's powerful stuff. And that one really in contention with the sister's death in Panchali were what I strongly considered here. So that brings us to our final two categories. And this is the one most fitting with the name of the awards, the Mitra's. What was his best shot in this marathon? Wow. So I'm going to go with something that is not representative, I think, of most of the films, but is just one that really made me sit back and take notice and wonder, where are we going here? And it's the chandelier in the music room. Maybe, yeah. maybe my least favorite, if I can even use that phrase. Me too. <laughs> because it's a film I like quite a bit, but compared to the others. But this shot, it's it's the first thing you see of this film. And I had no idea what to expect. We were coming off of the Opu trilogy. So largely a rural set trilogy. And sometimes we'd get into cities, but nothing like the ornate estate that's in the music room. And nothing like this completely black screen inky black and at the center of it is this inexplicably suspended and illuminated chandelier it looks like something that would be more fitting for last year's under the skin sci-fi movie with some really weird imagery than it would be an opu film so i think what i liked about this is it just showed me right away that ray and subrata mitra they weren't going to be content with what they'd accomplished in the films they had made already they were going to continue to take risks and jarring ones put us maybe a little bit on edge or uneasy, as we talked about the end of Charlotta with the freeze frames. Right here, we're not sure why we're getting this striking image, but it does prepare us thematically for the movie that comes. I mean, a chandelier, it's one of the dominantly ornate objects in this music room of the aristocrat who's at the center of the movie. And uh, it, it, we see it a number of times as the film goes on. There's another memorable shot where the aristocrat looks down in his glass of wine, which is dark, and sees the reflection of the chandelier, too. So someone on Twitter actually reminded me when I posted an image of this uh, that my f number two movie of last year, Memphis, has this chandelier motif as well in it uh, that's used pretty prominently so i don't know maybe i just have a thing for chandeliers in the movies but there is something mysteriously magical uh, i think about them and especially here at the start of the music room it also explains your love for liberace yes i didn't know it until now i'm having a chandelier installed in my home now <laughs> okay so this was hard and I did not go with one from the music room, though I did consider one from the music room. It was near the end, in that same room where the chandelier is, when he's looking at the mirror and invoking his noble ancestors. Yeah. Wonderful shot, wonderful scene. But again, I could run through a list of them here. We talked about the sister being punished in Father Panchali when the mom kicks her out and the screen is sort of split in half by their wall. The mom on one side, domestic on one side, and nature out on the other. The camera staying in the doorway... And then ultimately panning as we see Apu mm -hmm. come back to find his mother, to look for his mother at the end of The Unvanquished. We spent a lot of time on that one. Walking the train tracks in the world of Apu with his friend talking about his life story and wanting to be a writer. The shot in the bedroom, the marriage night between the now husband and wife in the world of Apu. The handheld shot we talked about a lot during the Big City Review, where you're just startled by being all of a sudden out in this bustling street and the camera following them as she goes to work. And the Big City has another one. It's that shadow doppelganger I talked about, where after the lipstick scene, after a lot of really difficult moments between husband and wife and other members of their family, we see the husband smoking late at night, and he sort of becomes another creature in front of us there with the smoke and the shadows. And then either swing shot, either swing shot in Charulata. Honestly, as of right now, Josh, I said I wasn't prepared. I have question marks. <laughs> How do you pick between those? They're yeah. all so good. I mean, if I had to force myself to pick one, just in terms of being able to take a shot. And now I went, I wanted to acknowledge this. I went there with some bravura moments, right? I did pick some that are a little bit... They call attention and they to call attention to themselves. How many shots could you pick? Like the one of Mukherjee in the big city, just looking at herself in the mirror. Still Consider shots. that one. Yep. Still shots. 
There are so many of them as well. We could list 25 or 30 of those. If I had to pick one, again, that if I was just going to take that frame out and really study it, it would probably be the one from the big city of the husband and the smoke. And okay. being behind the curtain as she sleeps, laying next to him, and he's still up considering his life and what he's become or not become. And he sort of morphs into two people before our eyes just because of the lighting and the smoke. Did you notice there's a matching one in Charlotta, almost a little bit, of her looking out of her bedroom window mm. with the curtains in front of her? And uh, I noticed as well, there's, uh, I don't know if it's the window frame, but something creates a bar, that bar effect where it looks like she is in prison. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely a good pick. Okay, so finally, best picture. Best picture. Well, how do you choose among masterpieces? Because by my count, there are at least two. There are two, I would say, in this marathon that we've done. I don't know how many of the marathons we've done. We can say that Father Panchali, the first in the Opu trilogy, and then The Big City. I am going to go the sentimental route. I'm going to go with Father Panchali. Mostly, I think... I knew you would. Just because it was my first exposure to Ray, and it was utterly revelatory. I think if I'd seen The Big City first, maybe I would have gone that way, but this is the one that just kind of opened, having seen nothing of his before, just kind of opened the world of Sajidit Ray for me. It does capture his early life, so this is when he's mostly played by Subur Banerjee. And it just has this knowingness, the word I keep coming back to, the delicacy in it. Uh, there's humility here and so much intimacy uh, of the sort that I really rarely see at movies, older ones that I revisit or new ones that we get today. So we've talked here a bit about the universality of Ray's films. I do think Padre Panchali, this is one of those that if you want to shoot off into space, we talk about sometimes for anyone wondering what's it like to be human. Here it is. Give them this. Yeah. No, that is a good criterion to use. Obviously, we've used it quite a bit on the show over the years, and I think it applies. I think it also applies potentially for me to the world of Apu and to the big city, which were my two contenders. And I'm going with the big city, and at this point, I'll just point you back to our discussion of it. We talked a long time about that film. For me, I think it's just the overall best combination of performances, style, social commentary, emotion, intelligence, just overall craft. I think it's really all on display. And I think there's still something about Panchali, and I said it too, in terms of right from the start, he exuded a sense of knowing what to do with the camera and having a visual style, and yet it's still a little bit more raw. There's another about, level of sophistication yeah, in the big city. He, Absolutely. He, he's capturing sort of a slice of life, and it's a little less crafted overall. And something about the big city just floored me. It really did floor me, seeing that main character played by Mukherjee and the journey she goes on. But, of course, the way that Ray captures it and puts it on screen was revelatory for me. So that's my choice. I'm going to give... A bonus award, too, and just say, this is my favorite marathon we've done so far. It's very close to the Robert Brisson marathon, which I think was the first one I did when I joined the show. I think it was. And that probably has two masterpieces in it as well. So pretty strong. But this this has just been great. It has been great. And I don't know. I've done more like 30 of them. And I'd really have to study it and think about it a little bit. But it's up there because I had the same thought as you. I've loved a lot of films. And the star ratings really don't matter because I, I spend too much time worrying about the half star here or there as well, and I shouldn't. But I gave five stars to two movies in this marathon. I don't know that in any of the other marathons I gave five stars yeah, to two films, often. and I had at least one four and a half. I think I had two four and a halves. I might have three with Charulata. So that's pretty high. That's pretty grand company, and I don't know that overall ratings I've rated any other marathon as high as I have this one. So I think that does say something. And if there are others who have not encountered Ray yet or are just starting to do so as we have with this marathon, we should note that it's official now. Criterion is going to be putting out this Blu-ray set of the Opu trilogy. Is that right? That is correct. Criterion Collection, new restorations on Blu-ray. We talked about this, I think, in the second episode of the Ray Marathon because a few listeners pointed out that this was sort of gestating and they had that festival, I think, in Columbus, Ohio, where they talked about the different restoration work that they're doing and this is exciting obviously to see these films to see them new and to see them in that restored way but also this was the new revelation to me that our listeners also brought to our attention we saw this on twitter in the past couple of weeks and david lichty in indianapolis he writes at indianapolis comma earth just in case we weren't sure okay was one of the listeners who wrote in and said i'm guessing you guys need to be aware of this not only are they coming out 
on Blu-ray. But actually, this summer, they're going to appear in select theaters, too. It's going to start in New York and L.A. So for our listeners there, you'll actually be able to see those first three films on the big screen. Wow. But then later in the summer, the films are going to roll out to other theaters across the country. So maybe there will be a Chicago one. If there is, should we say it now? We'll have a meetup. Yeah. Oh, and watch for these sure. Films. I've got to see one of these on the big screen if I can. That's okay. a don't miss opportunity. Absolutely. So we have one final piece of business before we close out this marathon, Josh. It's some listener feedback. We haven't shared a ton of it throughout this marathon. And it's funny, too. You may remember, listeners, if they go back to that second or third episode where we shared the information about Criterion and we had that great voicemail from a listener, Ben, in Houston, I believe. And... <laughs> We then read an email from a Ben in Houston, and I completely didn't acknowledge on the show. I just pretended like Houston's full of it guys was a named ben, ben, right? Who loves Sajidit Ray. It's the same guy. There's ben only Hawthorne. one Ben in Houston. Probably, right? And he loves Ray. So that was funny. But we got a great email a few weeks back, Josh. And of course, especially with my voice being what it is, why don't you do the honors of reading this one from Shomik Hasin? in Dhaka, Bangladesh. I hope this will just sort of put in perspective a little bit the power of these films and discovering them and rediscovering them. Sachidit Ray is a pretty big deal back home. He is the big director, the central pivot of the holy trinity of Bengali cinema, with the other spokes being Ritwik Gatak and Murnal Sen. I apologize for butchering those. I wanted to share a story about how he's thought of back home. One weekend when I was about 13, my aunt called up our house and told my grandma to turn on the TV. A marathon of the Opu trilogy was showing on one of the channels. My mother and grandmother spent the entire day watching it. When my uncle came home, he joined them. He's always swamped with work, so this was a rare thing. Even my father popped in for a scene or two. He's a filmmaker and teaches film studies at a university, so he's probably seen the movies about 50 times by now. It seems a bit funny that they spent an entire day that way. Those are long films played end to end, not to mention commercials, but they stuck through it. I remember watching some of the Padre Panchali before wandering off. I was young, and I preferred Ray's musical children's comedy, Goopy Gain Baga Bain. Right before Apur Sansar was about to end, my mother and grandmother called us all together to watch it. Afterwards, my grandmother let out a sigh. It was one of those sighs that you hope to have more of in your life. The kind of sigh that ends a good full meal, or the kind you make before you fall asleep on a lazy afternoon while reading a good book. Then she she stretched and said, well, wasn't that a lovely day? My mother agreed. I think that was the last time I had seen a Ray movie, but inspired by the film Spotting Marathon, I delved in once more. A few days ago, I was speaking to my father on the phone, and I told how much I was enjoying them. He had a good laugh about it. You never listened to us when we told you those movies were good, he said. I guess I didn't, but that was my loss. Thank you, Shomik, for that wonderful email. And that closes out officially, Josh, the Satchajit Ray Marathon. As you said, we will certainly miss it, but maybe we'll have a chance to rediscover these movies ourselves this summer when they come out in theaters and also on Blu-ray. I'm going to stop talking now. Hope everyone enjoys the upcoming episode of Film Spotting Proper. And Josh, you'll be back the following week. I will. Beep.